Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for March. Coming up, we're going to discuss Drive, have a look at Sherlock, and we're also going to delve into the murky world of streaming movies. And joining me on the podcast tonight is Steve, Simon, Mark and Kaz. Good evening, guys. Evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. Hi, Phil. Hello. Okay, well, I guess we've got to start at the beginning, which is Drive. And who's going to tell us all about it? Well, seeing as I reviewed it at the cinema and um, on Blu-ray release, I guess I better be the uh, kickstart for this. Um, I found Drive to be the best film of 2011. Um, it, it completely blew me away at the cinema. Uh, it wasn't what I was expecting at all, which I appreciate in some people's opinions was uh, a disappointment. Um, it isn't uh, an indie version of Fast and the Furious or anything like that at all. It's um, it's a, a, a kind of a throwback, 80s-styled uh, mood noir um, with a, a fantastic, eclectic soundtrack um, and some very subtle, nuanced performances, not least by Ryan Gosling, who's purely channeling some kind of early Brando um, to to create this aloof but very uh, um, electric performance uh, in a film which will have you hooked and will, I like, I'd like to think, blow you away. Not in a Michael Bay kind of way, but I have to say, that's only for the better. Um, anyway, Drive came out a while back and uh, is a fairly low-budget movie and um, uh, did surprisingly well at the box office, um, so much so that they immediately talked about the different versions they were eventually going to release on Blu-ray. Uh, including uh, an oddly titled Queen version, which uh, we haven't as yet seen. So, Drive has been released in the US and the UK, and um, not wholly unusually, uh, the versions are different and the UK has lost out. Um, Both have different extras, but that's negligible at this stage, because quite honestly, if you want extras, you're going to have to wait for the Queen edition. Uh, in the meantime, um, the big thing that has been causing some debate and some amount of animosity is the difference in video quality. Now, uh, I had the opportunity of borrowing and comparing both releases. And I have to say, unless you're actually really looking for it, the, the differences aren't huge. But the fact that they're there and the fact that basically people would be better off going out and picking up the US version uh, is a disappointment. It just shouldn't be that way. Um, but whatever you do, uh, I would highly recommend you pick up one version of the film. And if you really, if, if you have problems going and getting the US version, or, um, then it's, it's really not going to harm your viewing pleasure to pick up the UK one. Um, just as long as you pick up and watch this movie, I highly recommend it. Well, I watched uh, watched it a couple of weeks ago um, on the US Blu-ray, I have to say. Uh, it looked fantastic, I, I thought. Um, and what it reminded me most of, of was uh, Michael Mann's movie Thief. Um, it had that kind of detached, cool, neon, like late 70s, early 80s noir feel to it. Um, it was very stylish. Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought the performances were great. I just didn't believe um, that Ryan Gosling's character, which who has no name, I don't think, in the film, the driver. Um, I didn't believe him. I mean, you know, he was kind of this totally unbelievable as a human being. No one no one behaves like that. Kind of detached, um, but kind of 
good in the in you know, and almost like he almost like he, was, he wasn't even human. It was like he was an angel come to earth to do some some good for a change. It just didn't didn't buy it. And none of the characters were particularly engaging. I didn't care about any of them, and therefore didn't care what happened at the end. I enjoyed it as a stylistic expressionistic piece, but um, you know I didn't find it emotionally fulfilling. Hmm. Okay. When um. I, I saw the trailer for this at the cinema, obviously, well, whenever it was, months and months ago. And immediately I, I saw it and I thought, oh, bloody hell, that's that, um, that's the, a remake of Driver or The Driver. Um, or was that uh, Ryan, what's his yeah, name? Walter Hill did it, didn't he? Ryan yeah. O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill, that's it. I thought, oh, that's just a remake of that. And I completely dismissed it. Didn't even consider it again until I uh, proofread Kazzy's review. And then I was like, oh, my God. God, what have I done? What an idiot! And I immediately pre-ordered the Blu-ray from um, uh, from Ax- from Planet Axel. That's um, the, the the US disc because um, at the time um, there was no scheduled UK release, which is why I went for the, U- the the US disc and why I got the US disc. And after watching it, I was just absolutely stunned. It was a fabulous, fabulous film. I'm sort of in, in between both Kaz and you and, and you here, Steve, because. Yes, I didn't get quite as emotionally involved as Kaz did, but I still felt it was a fabulous film. The, yeah, and, 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 and there are elements in it which <laughs> I don't really want to talk about because they're huge spoilers. Um, but if I just say the lift scene <laughs> or the elevator. Yeah, there, there's some absolutely fantastic violence in it. I'll give you that. There's some <laughs> top violence. And it's brilliantly done. Yeah, it's really well directed. It looks fantastic. It's very stylish. Like I said, you know, it's got lots of things going for it. But at the end of the day, to be truly a great film, you have to care about the people in it. And this just goes for all of Nicholas Winding Refn's films. I didn't give him, I mean, I watched Bronson quite recently, and it's such a, re- a repellent character that I, I just, it was a tr- chore to get through it. I mean, yeah, great performance from the um, um, guy playing Bronson, I've forgotten his name now. Uh, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, thank you, yes. Uh, great performance from Tom Hardy, you know, again, quite stylishly directed and made. But, you know, the guy was a psychotic lunatic I couldn't care less about. And I'd rather he died and saved us money in the prison service. Um, a second film, Valhalla Rising, that I saw of his not so long ago as well, didn't get it at all. <laughs> Once again, they had a lead character, you know, who didn't say a word and you didn't care about or understand or know anything about. I mean, I find, you know, that his films, whilst they have plenty of style, have no real substance. Uh, see, it's interesting because I, I find that I totally agree about uh, Valhalla Rising and Bronson. Uh, Valhalla Rising was just a, a mood exercise in pure so- style, um, it massively stylistically over the top. And there wasn't anything, there didn't feel like there was anything behind it. He, he managed to make it so stylish that you're just gl- glued to the screen, but nothing actually happens. Of and also, didn't get, I, didn't, I didn't understand the ending either. <laughs> <laughs> what happened at the end? <laughs> well, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but uh, well, well, no, don't bother watching Valhalla Rising unless you really want to waste two hours and you're that bored. Um, yeah, it, it's not, and it's certainly not what it looks like on the cover because the cover depicts the hero in a sort of a three hundred like situation yeah, yeah, where he's totally got fat, mismarketed. That, yeah, that never ever happens in the movie or has anything to do with the movie, other than selling it to people who like 300. And Bronson is difficult because you're absolutely right. It's a great performance, but it's it's a horrendous, despicable character. But there are plenty of movies like that. Drive, I, I don't agree that it painted shallow characters. I found that the, the driver himself in it was very against type. I didn't think he was angelic at all. I didn't think he was a good guy even. I think that was the whole point of the movie was that he he wanted to be a good guy. He wanted to play the good guy, but actually inside him, what he does and what he can do is 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 too much for any good guy to ever live with or swallow. It's and that's what makes him good at it. Uh, that detachment and that I mean, it's he's a psychopath. And well, uh, you could call him an avenging angel. I mean, is he a psychopath? I mean. In the situations he's put in, I mean, his responses might seem extreme, but then at the same time, you know, I don't think I've done anything different, actually, uh, yes, if I've been uh, in that situation. Well, we're getting close to, to saying things that might spoil it for Mark well, yeah, and Phil, but, but, but I think, I think the, the point about what they show and the way he behaves is that 
we might respond in a similar way, but he goes to the next level. And I think that's the crux of the whole story that he tells about the scorpion and the frog. I mean, which is ripped off from um, from the crying game anyway. <laughs> they use exactly the same story. I mean, I know it's a common story; it's not new, but they use the same metaphor in the in the crying game. Interesting. I don't even remember that. I didn't even realise that. But yeah, I was trying to think back to, to when that might have happened in the growing game. But but, but, but also, yeah. I didn't I didn't buy the I did not buy at all. Um, Kerry Mulligan's character. <laughs> Why would she be someone like her? Just didn't I wouldn't for a second imagine her being married to the guy she's married to. Didn't buy it for a second. Didn't believe it for a second at all. Um, which which meant that you know, his his actions therefore don't have any basis in reality. Um, yeah, I, I kind of see what you're saying, but they they met when they were young, which was the whole point. They yeah, met when they were too was. too young to to really know better and again, avoiding spoilers, I think that the guy she's married to isn't that bad. He He's he's not portrayed as the cliche we would expect from, you know, prison convict, particularly no, I I like a Hispanic prison, prison convict. His like, character he, was the most, uh, the most affecting in my, in my book because he wasn't portrayed as, as, as you'd expect him to be and, in fact, was the most sympathetic. But did, did you really expect the driver to, to do and behave the, the way he did? I mean... You know, he. It, it, well, it's, no, I think somebody who who who's portrayed the way he. I mean, it's not giving anything away here because this is the basic premise of the film is that you know he's he's a stuntman who also works part time as a getaway driver, um, but you know he's very detached, very very unemotional about it, very um, precise in everything he does, which would make sense if you're a stuntman. You're not precise, you get yourself killed, and therefore same, same as a getaway driver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, both 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 anything like that where where it's about precision timing. You know, and everything being planned to the last second, which makes most of his actions thereafter completely, <laughs> completely against type. Yes, but as I said, again, I, I think it's it's he, him uh, confronting the fact that he wants to be something he can't be. It's, I mean, it's the story which I related it to all of the the Michael Mann stories, all of the stories he's come up with where uh, criminals, anti heroes who are pure perfectionists are. If, for want of a better term, undone by that one glimmer of wanting to be a normal human being. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, Robert De Niro in Heat. It's he, very he Heat in that to, to, Yeah, he wants to have a, a relationship and be normal, but uh, he has to just turn around the car and go back and finish business. You know, it's it, it, all of it, all of man's perfectionists have, have had that element. And Thief had, a, you know, similar sort of uh, one last job, I'm going to just get out and do my own thing. Um, I, th I think, uh, you know, the only only thing that I, I think the movie suffers from in a way is comparisons to Driver, because obviously it, it has huge nods to the old 70s film, the Walter and New film we all talked about, but that is definitely, to me, an exercise in pure style. I don't think that Ryan O'Neill's Driver um, was ever supposed to be this interesting multi-dimensional character he was he was purely a driver and he was purely about that business and he never i don't get, i didn't get the impression that he ever got undone by some flaw like a woman in his life or something like that he he was just always playing the game against the cops and the criminals around him um, but I, it's interesting because that role was originally going to go to steve mcqueen and i find Ryan O'Neill, uh, sorry, Ryan, Ryan Gosling's performance in Drive was very Steve McQueen, very Marlon Brando as well, but very Steve McQueen in that he almost says less to say more. And I know that doesn't work for everybody. People are going to just go, he's aloof, he's vacuous, he's irritating. But I think that it worked wonders in scenes where he could have said so much but actually he just keeps it down to pointing his finger, uh, smiling slightly, you know, just that chewing on that toothpick or, you know, that steely look in his eyes. I mean, he he nailed it. I hope he doesn't do it in every one of his films because whilst it is cool, it, it won't work for every one of his roles. But No, um, I, I agree with you. Ryan Gosling, it was superb. And, and it's, in fact, fast becoming the most interesting actor of his generation. I watched The Ides of March recently and, and he was excellent in that as well. Um, you know, I think he's definitely an actor to watch. I think I think he's... He's very talented. 
And you're right, he gives a great performance. It's just the problem is, you know, great performances, great direction. But if I don't buy into the characters, at the end of the day, it's, it's a wasted experience for me. You need to be emotionally involved in a film for it to be truly great, I think. Otherwise, it becomes like a Kubrick movie. You know, Kubrick made some great films. I mean, technically brilliant. But the problem is, most of the time, you don't care about anybody in them. And, and I think that always makes them slightly flawed. So, Kaz, uh, you're saying it's heavy on style. It, it was a low-budget film. Um, in terms of cinematography, how does it look? Well, I think it looks fantastic, what they've done with it. Um, because we're, we're talking about painting... We're talking about modern film painting uh, an 80s L.A., so when they when they did the cinematography for it, they picked out locations that haven't changed in the last thirty years. They they did the side streets and the back alleys and no modern structures and uh, shot the overview aerial shots of the streets and uh, it, it it had a very eighties feel to it without feeling dated at all. Just just giving it a sort of an otherworldly uh, feel. And um, I, I think they do extremely well. I, th I think the, the low budgetness of it just means that what you're looking at isn't um, a Hugh Jackman blockbuster, which is what this was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a big uh, $150 million blockbuster studio film with Hugh Jackman in the role. And it, because they, they dropped it and no one was interested in it, it got picked up and made independently. And I still still think that without the grand stunts and explosions, they can still capture everything needed for a great movie. And it doesn't look low budget for a second. It just doesn't have shed loads of effects and loads of massive car crashes. That said, the moments it does have, I think, are, are particularly special. And, you know... <sighs> I don't know what will happen down the line, but, you know, there's always the opportunity to do other sort of drive-like things. I mean, Refn is, is lurking towards doing another film with um, Gosling. I can't for the life of me remember what it is, but it involves Thai boxing and revenge. Um, and it's it's supposed to be really good. And, you know, I think that there are ways for good directors to make stylish picture perfect movies on a low budget and it not suffer yeah i'd have to say also the sound design was really good there's a fantastic bit where there's a helicopter looking for him that's superbly done it, it, it's got a great i think has already mentioned it's got a really good score with some really good music in it um that again is, is very evocative of, of the early 80s um and and it's got superb sound design i mean i, I mean that, that technically i thought it was fantastic i really enjoyed like i said i did enjoy it i just don't think it's Perhaps is great. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was ignored at the Oscars. I think because of the things like the detachment and the lack of um, empathy with the characters. See, I, I think it was just ignored at the Oscars because of the violence. There are only, about, there are only three scenes in the film which are uh, particularly violent. And um, they're spark moments. But I think it, it was too much for the Oscars to, because they're going to be people there who go, no, not interested in this. But, uh, you know, you, you can't say that a film like this should be ignored at the Oscars, but, you know, Tom Hanks, incredibly close and extremely. What's it? Oh, yeah. Incredibly loud. Sorry, I was extremely close and incredibly loud. Yeah, I, just, I was just desperately trying to add a swear word there, but <laughs> avoiding that. But, um, yes. It's um, incredibly pants. So, um, you, you know, there are films which I get the feeling will be looked back on in years and, and they'll go, that was a great film. I mean, Raging Bull back in the day was massively violent and people were shocked dominated. by it. Yeah, and it didn't and so get it. was Taxi Driver. So I don't think it's necessarily... Was involved. Taxi Driver nominated? Yeah, it was, it was Best Film nomination in 76. Along with, you know, you look at No Country for Old Men one not long ago, and that was a pretty violent movie in places, so... I'm not sure whether quite in the same line as this. No, no the violence in, in Drive is, is uh, you know, quite difficult to watch at times, because it's genuinely yeah. brutal in a, in a realistic... Irreversible style. In a very realistic way, which is what makes it so powerful. It's none of that over-the-top Hollywood violence. It's a very realistic violence that you've seen in things like, if you've ever seen the film Irreversible, it's, there's a scene in that mm -hmm. that's very, very similar um, and equally as shocking. 
but you know, yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, different people take different things away from it. Uh, you know, you love it. I, I enjoyed it, but found it ultimately uh, an empty experience. So. And it was ignored at the Oscars because it was a talkie. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting 20 minutes to use that joke, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting on you guys shutting up. Okay, so that, that's Drive. It is out on Blu-ray now, and it's sitting in my player ready to go as soon as we finish this recording. Uh, so I hope it's good. <laughs> You'll enjoy it. And moving on, uh, we're going to move away from the world of movies. And Kaz, what are we talking about now? Sherlock. It's just one word for us. It's um, the... TV show by Stephen Moffat. He he worked on the Doctor Who reboot, and then he um, came up with this idea for a, a new Sherlock. I mean, it's not the first time it's been done before. I think they did a Sherlock Holmes for the 21st century uh, cartoon, and they've I'm sure they've done plenty of stories before. But it was it's a modern day Sherlock. It's Sherlock set in in current England, and um, yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, it's got all the style that you would expect of kind of a flash, modern, arguably American show, and all of the wit and the intelligent writing of a British show. And um, I think it's it's tremendous viewing. There are very limited episodes. They're all based on the original Conan Doyle stories, uh, but they all adapt them for modern relevance. Um, but the first series was three 90-minute episodes, and the second series is exactly the same, three 90-minute episodes, and um, they're all amazing. I would say that if you're going to watch the show and you start to get used to how good it is, you are going to find dips in the show, and as I mentioned in my review, the both seasons have suffered from a dip in the middle episode. I just don't yeah. think that the middle episode is as good as the ones at the beginning and the end. But unfortunately, I think that's because the ones at the beginning and the end are so damn good. I mean, they they find a way of making Sherlock Sherlock Holmes, the one we know and have seen in black and white movies and have seen dozens of times before, and making him both relevant in modern culture and modern society and also still the same old guy who's got his eccentric mannerisms and his violin playing and his weird behavior anti-social behavior and his addictions uh, they, they roll it all up into one package and probably most astoundingly right on the uh, in in the wake of Guy Ritchie's admittedly great reinvention his Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr the period ones um they found a way of creating something which is just as interesting just as compelling but in almost a completely different universe there, there is no problem with watching Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movies enjoying them loving them the slow motion the way he stylistically dissects Sherlock Holmes's thoughts and uh, the wit and Robert Downey Jr is brilliant in the role you can watch all of that, love it, and still watch the British show and just see a different take on it. it. It's very much that both can coexist. And when I first came across the TV series, I was like, who came up with this idea? Why are they doing it after Guy Ritchie's just brought Sherlock Holmes into the world of cool? Um, but it works. I mean, Benedict Cumberpatch is brilliant as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, they've got um, Martin Freeman as uh, Watson, uh, he's the guy from The Office, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, and, of course, The New Hobbits. Um, and uh, they make a brilliant pair. Um, the opening episode gives you a taste. This is the first season, so no spoilers here. <laughs> it gives you a taste of what like Sherlock Holmes is like. And we're talking about a guy who um, can read everything, where you've been, what your background is from the, the stains on your sleeves, the, the, the dirt under your fingernails, ridiculous things. But what makes it more interesting is that they use lots of technology and lots of style to bring those to the, the viewer. So when he's looking at his phone and reading through messages, the messages pop up on screen. When he's looking at someone, you know, they draw a little circle around the fluff on the guy's shoulder and then zoom in and tells you what it is. You, you get into the head of Sherlock and it makes it all the more amazing for watching it. So, guys, it, interestingly, I mean, this is set 21st century. Um, I haven't seen it. And the first thing that springs to my mind is that the, the whole reason that Sherlock Holmes was a, 
a bit of a character was the time period in which he was set. I mean, it was before forensics. It was before uh, different types of of investigations and that kind of thing. So, I mean, uh, how, how have they managed to make him appear cleverer than he is in today's age of technology and forensic uh, science and all that kind of thing? I think that the modern Sherlock, um, they they haven't sought to make him independent of technology. They just made him faster at using it and faster at using his mind to interpret the data. So you will find this Sherlock using his phone, using his computer, or, or more likely Watson looking up stuff for him, but he's not afraid of technology at all. He can just move faster with it. When, you, when you're looking for the answer for, to problems, Watson's always asking Sherlock, uh, you know, have you got a clue as to, to what the answer is here? And Sherlock always comes up with a response like, yeah, I've got 17 right now. Um, but if we take that into account, that makes it 23. But we can rule this out. And he's he's like a massive statistician. He's a he's a, a huge brain. And I think that they they allow technology to work with him. You know, he hangs in the forensics labs. He goes to the to the uh, mortician to, to get some advice and to do chemical analysis. He just works faster. He's he's Grissom from CSI added to House, added to <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. You know, he's the whole package rolled into one. To a certain extent, they've obviously got to make the police a little bit inept. But realistically, we are as as a nation and as, as a planet probably massively uh, uh, misled by shows like CSI because you know it, that's not the way it works in real life. Running running all the time, and and David Caruso won't pop up on your crime scene, take off his sunglasses, and go, you know, it should have been the best day of her life, not the end of it, or something really cheesy. Um, that's that's not the way it really works. Well, um, yeah, I, I I greatly enjoyed it. Um, I'm a big fan of Holmes in, in you know literary form in in film form. Um, the Basil Rathbone series of films uh, I I absolutely loved, and and the the Jeremy Brett series as well was I thought fantastically authentic. And I I was almost preparing myself to hate this when it came out. I I just um, when I heard Stephen Moffat was attached, I, I've, I've never really warmed to the new Doctor Who, but that's a that's another issue. Um, but yeah, I, I found it was it was a perfect update. It's as Kaz says, it doesn't shun um, modern technology. There's always that that slight um, worry that they're going to take something from a different period, update it, but then at no point will you see anyone whip out a mobile phone or, or something like that. Um, they don't just not shun it. They make it pretty much pivotal in several episodes. They they really do use it in a smart way. Um, you know, the the performances are great. Um, Martin Freeman makes a really kind of likable Watson. He's, he's not kind of dull or inept. Um, but everything does kind of come back to this characterization of Holmes. It, it's, it, as Kaz said, it, it's almost slightly psychopathic. It, he's... He's a proper oddball now, um, whereas before he he was cold, but cold simply because he was a this kind of calculating being, this kind of super detective able to see you know dozens of things in the most mundane scenarios. Uh, now he's he's almost a bit more kind of um, slightly ADD, slightly autistic or something. You know he's he's. St- ill at ease in certain social situations but he's got this this kind of supercomputer of a brain going at all times but they've also kind of flipped that by changing moriarty as well who's who's now less of a of a you know this detached supervillain purely bent on money making schemes and seems more childish and and downright insane um it, it's just got great performances running all the way through it and they've they've updated it well but as Kaz said about a, a, a kind of companion piece to, to Richie's films, I think this works well as a companion piece to, to any of the other kind of um, interpretations of Holmes, you know, down the years. And um, the only thing I, could, I would say, actually, I suppose, is, is Holmes is almost unlikable um, in, in certain situations. Um, they, they portray him as um, when he's uh, talking to people or about people or, or he's using his, his intellect. Um, he can almost be hurtful 
Um, not not because he means to. It's because he doesn't understand the social graces. That or that, at least that's how it's put forward in in certain episodes. Um, which is uh, it's it's quite brave to make a character that's so aloof, so almost hurtful, and so out of touch, be the star of a show. And it's um and it's uh, a testament to the acting. Um, the, and and the guy is just fabulous in the role. It, it does almost seem like they're they're portraying his sleuthing ability as less in, in, in previous interpretations where it was stuck to the, the Conan Doyle view that it was, it was this choice of Holmes. You know, he, he was driven by this, this want to, to analyze, you know, that was all he was really focused on here. It's, it's almost like it is like a, a kind of social disability. It's, it's almost like a, a, like an affliction. He's, he just doesn't seem to be able to read people or, or certain situations in the same way that that Holmes previously was portrayed, even at his, his almost his most acerbic, he, he was usually more of a gentlemanly figure, should we say? Yeah, which is why um, Martin Freeman's character here they they work quite so well because um, that this home, this uh, Watson, is more of a, an, an every person. He, he he almost interprets how Holmes is thinking and behaving to the rest of the world, it, and it works really well. The couple together works really really well. Yeah, he's almost like his carer at times. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what Mark said about Conan Doyle's original interpretation of Holmes because he painted this guy who didn't want to know things which weren't necessary to his function as a detective. He didn't care that there were other planets in the universe. They made no difference to his solving of crime. And it's an aspect which they only introduce in the first episode of this show, and they never really touch on it again. They make him out to be, as you say, a bit more antisocial and a little bit less um, that he's done it out of choice, a bit more uh, out of nature rather than a decision. But they did mention in the first episode, I mean, Martin Freeman's like, do you not care about the moon? And Holmes like, what difference does it make to my studies? It's interesting because Doyle, Conan Doyle, posited that Holmes believed his brain was only so big so you couldn't have everything in there, which, of course, perhaps at the time of the writing was maybe what they thought and maybe since has, has been updated in thinking. Okay, so I seem to be the only one that hasn't seen this yet. Um, in terms of uh, budget, in terms of uh, how it looks and, and so on, I mean, um, the BBC, they can either make things look absolutely uh, astoundingly good for for the small budgets that these types of TV programs have, or it it can look like it's been shot on video and and it, and so it looks on. good, Phil. It looks good. It's actually some of the episodes are directed by Paul McGuigan, who's an actual movie director, and it, there is bags of visual style in the movies. In the um, well, actually, they are like movies. I mean, they're three episodes per season, and they're an hour and a half. So basically, they're three movies per season, and they are shot with a great deal of. I mean, not dissimilar in many ways to Guy Ritchie's. They are quite stylistic, as Kaz has already mentioned, in terms of, you know, the way that they get into his mind as he introduces things like the clues on people's clothing, that sort of thing, and the way they they they, they incorporate modern technology in, into the plots. Uh, yeah, it's it's they're actually quite cinematic in many respects, much more so than a lot of TV shows. Um, and they're well lit and well shot, and um, the, the cast are all excellent. I mean, what you said, Benedict Cumberbatch really nails... Um, this version of Holmes, um, and he had, he looks a little bit stranger. I think when he works with the character too, and Martin Freeman plays a great um, great Watson. But what's great is that, I, I mean I love it because there's no reason why you can't update. Sherlock. I mean Sherlock Holmes was written in the eighteen in late eighteen hundreds, nineteenth century rather. Um, so it was contemporary of its time. There's no reason why you couldn't have a, a modern day Holmes. Um, and in fact, the Buzz Rathbone movies were set in the thirties. Once again, they were contemporary of their time. And and what they do really cleverly is incorporate modern things. So instead of having a diary, Watson has a blog. Um, they use mobile phones all the time. There's constant jokes about them being gay. Um, they introduce things like the deer stalker in really humorous ways. Um, and, and and in fact, even uh, Watson himself, who in the novels is uh, a military doctor who's who's injured in Afghanistan and returned back to London, exactly the same thing in this. And uh, so it just goes to show you how much things change. Nothing changes at all. Um, and I love the way that they take the original home story. So, like, for example, the first episode of the second season is based on a scandal in Belgravia, which includes the character of Irene Adler, who was a major character in the first Guy Ritchie movie. 
Um, and, it, and it takes the basic plots of those books and then reworks them for modern telling. And I think Gaz is absolutely right. And the two, the first episodes of season one and two are written by Moffat and are by far the best. Um, and, the, and the season uh, sort of cliffhangers are both good too. And the middle one, which I think in both cases is written by Mark Gattis, are a little bit weaker. Um, but partly because the first two, the opening episodes and last episodes are so good. Um, my only problem is that Moffat has a bad habit of writing himself into narrative corners. He's got so many ideas that he can't actually cram them all into one hour and a half. He's even worse than Doctor Who, where he has to try and cram it into 45 minutes. Um, and that's my only problem with him is that sometimes he gets a bit carried away. He has too many ideas. And sometimes you feel like the endings are a bit rushed. That's particularly true of... of um, of the first episode of the second season, uh, Scandal and Belgravia, where there was so much going on in it and so many great ideas that the very the, the new more felt very rushed to me. Um, but uh, but generally, it's it's brilliant film. You should, you'll you'll really enjoy it. It's well made, it's well acted, and it takes uh, Sherlock Holmes in the twenty first century in, in imaginative, and it's also very funny at times as well. But you're actually right about the character. They've made him borderline autistic. Uh, I guess Asperger's syndrome would be the closest. Um, analogy you know very very intelligent but incapable of normal social interaction which makes him unwittingly cruel particularly to the female coroner who fancies him um i think she gets the brunt of it frankly but um but yeah yeah it's it's a great show it's i, I love it can't wait for season three that is out on disc now uh, kaz give us quick disc details on it so yeah okay so sherlock's on um region b locked uk blu-ray uh, it comes with uh, 1.78 to 1 1080i video presentation and um, a pretty healthy Dolby Digital 5.1 soundtrack. I know both of them are standard, but they do extremely well at presenting the uh, very stylish TV series. Okay, so that's Sherlock. It's out on disc now. Kazi's review is up there, as well as uh, Drive, which we uh, discussed earlier. If you want to read the reviews, then head over to avforums.com forward slash movies, where you'll find those and heaps more uh, that we've reviewed in the last month. And if you want to find out what's coming soon, then divert your eyes to the right-hand side of the page, and there is a list there of coming soon reviews. Now, to wrap up the podcast this month, we're going to move on to the thorny issue of movie streaming. Uh, Netflix has just recently launched in the UK, uh, as well as Love Film, which has been around for a couple of years now. Both offer streaming services where you're using a a games console or a a new smart TV to stream movies uh, direct to your TV, so bypassing having to buy Blu-rays or DVDs and so on. Um, So, guys, as movie fans, uh, we're all guilty of this. Uh, We all buy discs, we all get discs in, we all review discs. We have huge disc collections. If you're proud of that, like I am, I know Steve's the same, they'll be on display in racks all over your room. Are we moving away from the physical medium? The quality's not there. It's too slow, it's too jittery. Even I've got um, 30 megabytes per second at the moment and it still looks rubbish. I've got three megabytes per second, so everything looks rubbish. <laughs> see, see, I watch things on, on Love Film, um, and I have to say that that is, that is the case when it comes to it being too slow and the quality's poor. But realistically, if that is our only problem with it, then it, it, it is just a matter of time. Whereas if our problem is actually what I feel, which is that I, I mostly want to own the physical media then there is a chance that discs will keep going. Because if it's just a matter of the fact that the quality is too poor because the, the streaming isn't fast enough, then it's just an, until the time comes when we've all got, you know, three three gigs second um, speeds and we can watch in HD streamed straight to our TV or even buffered, whatever they want to come up with first. I mean, that's it, it is just a matter of time. But uh, as, as Phil said, he's proud of his collection and you are too Stephen and I am too although the reality is that uh, if I was given the choice between having everything in a very small hard disk and having everything displayed across the entire room I suspect that my better half would insist (laughs) that everything displayed across the room (laughs) is reduced to something the side of a hard disk there really is no argument. I don't spend days looking at cover art and going, wow, that's a really cool cover. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, I don't need it out there. So I, I couldn't, can see how there, there are ways in which this is going to take over. I, I guess, yeah. I mean, looking back in the past, the days of, um, well, Laserdisc, uh, it was almost like collecting uh, albums in terms of the cover art and, and the packages that were put together. There were uh, sumptuous packages. I mean, I, I spent hundreds and hundreds of pounds on some of these sets <laughs> back yeah, in the day. I, I know you're the same, Steve, and um, the anticipation of waiting for the courier to turn up. I mean, you were paying a fortune for these things. It was composite video <laughs> back then. I mean, it's broadcast quality composite video, but it's, it was still composite video. Then moving on to DVD, obviously DVD um, a lot more uh, affordable as a format. I mean, uh, just just to compare, I mean, Laserdisc was it was about fifty pounds a disc for a single disc edition, Steve, if I remember right. Yeah, and then forty fifty quid. And then anything up to three four hundred pounds for <laughs> for a box set. Moving on to DVD, yes, it was a smaller format. You didn't get that lovely artwork and all the rest of it as a collector's item. Uh, but then again, you got two-disc, three-disc, four-disc box sets and, and so on, and it became affordable. The picture quality was so much better um, than than Laserdisc and, and VHS before it. I mean, it was it was a big leap. Now we moved on to Blu-ray. It's touted as the last physical format um, that we will ever own in terms of movie delivery, which brings us to, the obviously, the streaming element now um, and watching things on demand and so on. And like Kaz said there, I've got a huge disc collection, but... There's only about three or four films in there that I would watch repeatedly, i.e. more than once. And I guess you have to then ask the question, well, if that is the case, then having your movie collection stored on a cloud or uh, even just streaming it for a couple of pounds when you feel like watching it, 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 does that make more sense, Steve? Yeah, I think think it's inevitable that that's where we're going. But like Kaz and like you, I, I do like owning the physical media. Um, I, I, that's probably because I'm old-fashioned compared to the modern generation who, who downloaded everything, and that's the way they've been brought up. You know, for me, you don't own something. I don't want to own something on a hard drive. That's not like owning it. I, I still buy CDs and rip them onto my iPod, but I still buy the physical discs. I don't download music. I still buy Blu-rays um, because I want to own the physical medium. And I'm sure that for a period of time, until such time as, first of all, download speeds are faster. I mean, for me, where I live, it's just not feasible. It's, the quality is rubbish and it takes forever. Um, so the two are going to co- coexist for quite some time. But I did believe until recently that Blu-ray would be the last physical medium, but I'm actually not completely sure about that now. I think the introduction of 4K um, as a possible, you know, and the, the idea of there being some form of physical delivery system for 4K and the sheer size of those, of those that, that we're going to need in terms of disk size, I mean, at least a hundred gigabytes, if not more, um, to to compress a, four, a film at four K resolution. That's going to rule out downloading for another ten years, at least where I live. Um, so, so there's a good chance we might still see one last hurrah for the for the disc format before uh, it finally dies. But it is only a matter of time now before we would move be, to. Steve, would it be a disc though? Wouldn't it be? more like a, a a thumb drive or a pen drive or something like that? Nobody because knows. they can hold. Nobody knows at this moment in time. There was supposed to be an announcement at CES, or we believe there was going to be an announcement of some kind, but the press conference was cancelled. Um, on the day, was it, Steve, it was cancelled? I can't quite yeah, remember. Yeah, or the day before. It was, it was, they announced, uh, 20th Century Fox announced there was going to be a big announcement at the JVC stand uh, about the future of uh, you know, home entertainment, and it was going you know, to, everything was going to change. Uh, and then they cancelled it. So I don't know what it was. We don't. We're just. Con- it's pure conjecture now. But um, Phil and I both sort of assumed that, that it was going to be some new delivery system. And there's no question they're working on something because you know that they they need to sell us something, and 3D didn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so basically, you know, they're going with the idea of you know larger resolu- larger screen sizes, higher resolution. And you know, if you're flogging 4K projectors and TVs, you you ultimately need to have some kind of 4K content, or people aren't going to go for it. So they need to have some kind of 4K delivery system. And the question is, how are they going to deliver it? Because certainly Blu-ray is not big enough in terms of its storage capacity. And even if you used a four four-layer Blu-ray, that's about 100 gig. 100 gig might not be enough. I mean, that's double the double the amount. But we're talking about something that's four times the resolution. So you need you need a 100 gig plus a more, far more efficient uh, um, compression 
uh, um, algorithm to deliver it. That takes us back to obviously this concept of streaming movies. Now, you just have to look at how successful iTunes has been in terms of uh, uh, music downloads in its first year, it's something like 10 million downloads. Um, nowadays, you're, you're talking about hundreds of millions of downloads, whether it's from iTunes or, or other services out there. This is the way that, as well, Steve, you, you pointed to this, that the kids these days are being brought up um, with with this philosophy of downloading uh, the content that they want to watch. We also have on-demand TV services like iPlayer, um, 4OD and, and so on, where we can catch up on our TV by uh, streaming the content through our smart TVs and so on. It, it's all pointing to, to a feature of streaming, but as we've already mentioned, the bottleneck is the broadband speeds. And with broadband speeds like that, I mean, uh, if I'm watching iPlayer, I can't watch it in high quality. Otherwise, it just stutters all the way through. Um, I've, got, I've got to put it back to SD to, to watch something all the way through. So this is the bottleneck. The thing with music downloads is that it's compromised in terms of the file sizes, uh, and the compression used, we're, we're going to head the same way with streaming movies. So, is it a case that we're moving to a future uh, mark where quality just doesn't matter? It's all about the content, how quickly the content gets delivered to the device, whether it be a, a mobile phone, a tablet, or a TV. I think ultimately it is kind of moving towards that direction, where it's in terms of accessibility as well as. Um, just interconnectivity as well where you know phones pcs tablets games consoles smart tvs it's it's finding a way to integrate all those devices and you know the basic framework has already been kind of tentatively put in place where you can access certain services from different devices and really it's it's being sold purely on accessibility i mean you know things like itunes if if you want the best quality you really still go most people are going out to buy the cds because it it makes sense generally uh, often in financial terms you can you can get um you know the cd still for less money in, in a lot of cases than getting it lossless via itunes it's it just doesn't seem to me that they're basing the service purely on quality. It, it's going to be based around quick access. You know, things like iPlayer. You're 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 watching something purely because you've missed it, and you, you're happy to just to be able to see it. You're not questioning, saying, "Well, this doesn't look that great." You want to watch the program. You want to download something. You want to watch something video on demand there and then. Um, my only real concern, other than the quality, would be um, pricing structures. I mean, the retail sector, um, bricks and mortar shops have to abide by, you know, the laws of supply and demand. Certain products will come down in price. Certain products will go back up in price. Um, in in the online um, world, in the way that certain businesses have structured their pricing, that just simply hasn't happened. You know, things get released and they will stay at full price for a large amount of time you know you're, you're seeing you know if a singer dies some music will go up in price uh it's 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 giving you that accessibility but i think there will be certain hurdles along the way where consumers will have a few doubts i think i think mark's right absolutely right there's sort of three areas this is there's there's a younger generation who have only ever known downloading and therefore that is the way they 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 will go you know they access music and movies and tv shows um, and you know that's the way it's going to go for everyone eventually. Then there's the fact that um, they also, you know, the younger generation will happily watch content on tablets and iPhones and uh, and their, their smartphones. And and there seems to be a, we're moving away from the idea, which is one of the problems that manufacturers are going to have with TVs. Is we're moving away from this idea of the television being the centre of the, the home and everyone watching it on TV. And we're moving away from the concept of watching movies on the big screen um, for the younger generation. Not so much for us. I mean, you know. Certainly, we're, the, we're far different. We, we spend a lot of money creating cinemas at home in order to watch films the way they're meant to be seen. But I don't think that's necessarily true of the younger generation. But, but you know, I, I, I'll be honest. You know, I haven't really, um, really tried. You know, I'm, I'm going to get a 30-day free membership of um, of Netflix and, and try it out because, you know, whilst there are certain things like Phil said that I definitely want to own, like Jaws is coming out this year, right? I'd kill 
for my Blu-ray for Jaws. I, you know, I want that desperately. Raise the Lost Ark towards the end of this year. Yeah, I want that badly. But you know, Weekend at Bernie's, I could probably watch that on on streaming video and be perfectly happy because I'm never going to be bothered about owning it. So yeah, I think there's going to be content that where you would just, you know, if you're one evening a bit bored, can't look at all your Blu-rays, think, no, oh, I don't fancy watching any of this tonight. I'll watch some crappy film that um that you know that, that I haven't seen but I'm curious about, and you could probably just just stream it. The big problem at the moment, as Phil said, is the bottleneck for someone like me. And just like Phil, I can't watch BBC iPlayer HD because it's just constantly buffering. Um, I haven't got I haven't got download speed at the moment. Yeah, but if you've got like you know BT Vision at 100 megabytes a second, it's probably much more of an option. Yeah, I think that's what it will boil down to at the end. Because the interesting comparison with music is that I think that people could be sold on the idea that mp3s and i know they're not as good quality as uh, getting sort of lossless cds or even going back to records but uh, i mean realistically people were sold because there's an almost indiscernible standard there i mean it's it's almost impossible to tell the difference i i don't find a problem downloading albums on itunes and then ripping them to a cd and playing them in the car i just there's, there's no difference for me. Um, so it's got to the stage where pe- people can sell you on MP3s because you don't feel like you're getting anything worse. Whereas I think there is still a huge gap between the quality of downloads and streaming and the quality you can pick up on Blu-ray. And people are still interested in watching movies that look, that visually and orally blow you away and that will be affected by watching them streamed and buffering and pausing occasionally and just not as good. Everything I've watched on Love Film has to be something that I'm not bothered about the quality on because I've noticed a couple of films that just, they look cheap in budget purely because they're shown in this sort of really badly DNR'd, soft, um, pixelated kind of compressed quality. Uh, when the reality is they'd probably look a lot better on Blu-ray. Even a bad movie would look better. And I, I think we haven't got to the stage where there is something that they can easily feed to viewers at home, like easily, um, which will replace uh, sort of picture-perfect Blu-ray. It's actually an argument why I think that, that 4K is is overkill. I think convincing everyone to go out and go for Blu-ray and Blu-ray done right is pretty much all we need to go for. I think if we went to the next stage, you're looking at people who will project it onto their walls and that's a bit more of a niche market. Whereas at the moment you can sell people on HD TVs and Blu-rays because it looks fantastic. But if you get a, a 40 inch screen and you're watching a blu-ray on it and then you stick a 4k image in it i'm not sold on the idea that on a 40 inch screen it'll make a huge amount of difference not if the blu-ray transfer is remastered nicely well you see kras before ces i would agreed with you there i would agreed with that thinking however we saw a 20 inch um screen from normal viewing distance panel uh one was was shown uh 1080p the other was showing 4K, 2K, and native 4K, 2K, and you could tell the difference. And wow. it was only once we saw that we thought, oh, uh, that that kind of bucks the trend, or, or certainly the popular thinking that you're going to need a, a a huge screen and be sat right next to it to see the difference in 4K. No, it's maybe to see the absolute fi- finite detail, but in terms of of picture, it was definitely sharper. It was definitely more detailed. And you could notice it, and that was from normal viewing distance on a twenty-inch screen. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're right, Phil. I think Kaz makes two points, both of which are valid. Which is one that most people would find it difficult to tell the difference between a CD and um, you know a, a, a lower resolution uh, rip of that CD in, in in a blind blind comparison. I don't think most people would be able to tell the difference, which is one of the reasons why you know. Downloading music is, I think, very popular. Also, it's a lot quicker than than um, than, than trying to download, a, you know, a movie. But the quality, the, people can tell the difference between bad quality video and good quality video very easily. Yeah. yeah. Um, the question is, though, do people care? Because I don't think that DVD was massive as a, such a gigantic hit because the picture quality was better. I think DVD was a massive hit 
because it was so much more user-friendly than VHS um, and a lot cheaper than Laserdisc. That's why it was so. You don't have to rewind the tape. You could access stuff. You could, you know, I think, I think, I think you're being a little bit unfair on people there. Um, if you if you're saying that that's a a, a general, um, yes, the public, the public at large, um, would like to think you know they watch a TVs in dynamic mode and and so on, and they don't appreciate a good picture. But I I don't think it's as clear cut as that. And and certainly DVD was a, a gigantic leap. In terms of picture quality, it was, yeah, no, it was I, one I totally that was agree. massively, you massively able even a, a normal member of the public to see that. Um, whereas the jump from DVD to Blu-ray has been a little bit more difficult to for people to appreciate. I think. Yeah, true. But I, I mean, my point was not so much that, but my point was that ultimately, what what wins out is convenience over over quality. I, I think is is the lesson we've learned from from downloading for example is yep. people are prepared to accept uh, reduced quality because it's convenient um and whilst i would rather buy a blu-ray which is 1080p 24 frames per second and 7.1 lossless audio which you cannot deliver in any way shape or form via video streaming currently i mean no one does that and and if you did try and do it, it would take forever you're talking about 50 gigabyte download would take forever for me uh, I sent a gigabyte to you for took fourteen hours, so because you know it would take me a week to download it. Um, so uh, you know, that, that, I, for my, for my, for me, you know, the, the level of quality that Blu-ray offers is a quantum leap above anything anything else on the market. So there's no, it's, it's a no-brainer unless it's something as Cas said, unless it's something I didn't really care about. Uh, I wasn't, you know, bothered bother about the the. Uh, the picture quality that goes back to the convenience factor. It's like you know, I just want to watch a film for an evening, and I'm not too bothered about what what they're about the film. Then maybe I would go for them. Like I said, I will try it out just out of curiosity, really. And also, when we're testing TVs, we need to do it anyway. But you know, I, I think it's a question of how important picture quality is to people, ultimately, or how much picture quality and sound quality are to people. And well, I don't think, unfortunately, it's as important to most people as it is to people like us. But I mean, the, the difference obviously between the MP3 and video is that with an MP3, um, your phone's an MP3 player. You can have an iPad, uh, an, sorry, an, iP- <laughs> an iPod. Um, you shove it in your pocket. You've got your music on random. You shove your earbuds in, and you can you can do other things. Uh, you can't do that with movies. You have to watch something. So so you're not going to walk down the street watching a movie on your phone, are you? People sit on trains though and watch a movie on their phone. Yeah, because they're stopped and they're looking for entertainment at that moment in time. But in terms of, of portability, I think that's where MP3, a massive part of MP3's popularity is, um, is because it's it's a mobile format. You can take it in the car with you and, and you can walk down the street and listen to your music and so on. The other thing is choice. Now, we've all got huge movie collections. How many times do you walk into your the room that, in which you, you watch your movies in and you look at your disc collection for something to watch, and because you've got so much choice, you end up just sitting on the settee and watching the TV instead, because you just can't decide what you want to watch. Yeah, that's true. It does happen every now and then. Same with music, to be honest. I've got 10,000 songs on my iPod, but I probably listen to about 20 on a regular basis. You know, you're right, Phil. You're sometimes you're spoiled for choice, aren't you? And you can't decide what you're going to watch. Mark? Yeah, I think, think on a yeah. daily basis that happens. Yeah, I'm, you're, I'm you're a, too busy reviewing, aren't you, Cast? <laughs> you don't get a choice about yes, what you're going to yes, watch. Yes, that's true. When I want to watch something that isn't a review title, I when can't. When you fancy watch. a busman's holiday. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm terrible for that, for that kind of thing. I've got piles of DVDs and Blu-rays and, and things that are still in the cellophane, and the, the cellophane makes me feel terribly guilty. Uh, you know, you, you, you've got it all there, but I think... Perhaps that's that's one of the reasons why um, things like MP3 has taken off. As you say, Phil, it, it's portable, but when you've got a collection of songs and things at your fingertips and you you literally, it sounds terribly lazy, but you can just flick back and forth between, you know, kind of a dozen different songs or, or you could do the same between, you know, TV shows, you know, if you load them up onto an HTPC or something, that's one of the great kind of bonuses of that kind of technology is that you can just browse so easily without having to look through, you know, miles of shelf space or, you know, I've, I've got 
Blu-rays and things sat in drawers everywhere, and I'm I'm constantly trying to find something else to store them in. Yeah, I, I do. Must have, I, I am in that same boat. I've got DVDs and Blu-rays all over the house, and shelves here and there and everywhere, just because I'm running out of storage space. So I must admit, going back to Kaz's original point, the convenience and and perhaps a slightly t- more tidy, neater, having everything on a hard drive would be semi-appealing were it not for the fact that I like owning the discs. Uh, uh, well, here's a simple question. Uh, Steve, Mark, uh, are you both single? <laughs> are you trying to draw a correlation between the two <laughs> points? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we could go on all night discussing this, uh, and, and it is an interesting subject. I'm sure we're going to come back to it. Well, I know we're going to come back to it in the future because... Uh, we keep getting told it is the future. And with the way that technology is moving, I mean, some of the stuff that we've seen at CES, it's coming this year. Um, I mean, the TV is definitely becoming smart uh, as we move forward. And it's going to be interesting to see just how the public uh, take to the new technology and, and how the public use it. Because, um, you know, it's great for these manufacturers to come up with all these ideas and, and to have companies like Netflix and, and Love Film and so on. But uh, at the end of the day, it comes down to how the consumer consumes uh, what's put in front of them, and it's going to be interesting to see exactly what wins out there. Yeah, I mean, a quick question: Has anybody actually um, joined Netflix yet? Because do you realise there is an AV Forums award, fifteen quid cashback if you do it? So might want to check that out. Okay, well, uh, I guess that's it for this movies edition of the podcast. We have sadly run out of time, uh, so my thanks to the guys this evening: uh, Steve, Simon, Mark, and Kaz. Thank you very much. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. Cheers. Don't forget, uh, we publish a whole host of podcasts every month. On the 7th of uh, the month, you can catch up with the Movies Podcast. On the 14th, it's the Games Podcast. 21st of the month is the Home Cinema Podcast. And on the 28th, we have our Podcast Extra. We'll be back again in April. Thanks very much for listening. This is Phil Hinton saying, stay subscribed. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.